Welcome to Jason the Movie Nods. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Keith Silva. And we are discussing the films of Wes Anderson um, since his new movie has just been released as we record this. And today we're going to focus on Grand Budapest Hotel and the Darjeeling Limited because I have not seen uh, Asteroid City yet, which I am ah. anxious to see. Yes, uh, you're been... you're in the middle of another uh, film marathon, so you're you're excused. You're excused. I'm in the middle of the David Lynch Film Fest that the Seattle International Film Festival is putting on, and uh, just to make this like more relentless, we're <laughs> taking our Fourth of July vacation, and then right after that is a Wong Kar Wai festival. Oh, nice! A- another departure. You you couldn't pick two directors who are a little uh, who are different than Wong Kar Wai, David more different. Lynch, Wes Actually, yeah. So um, we were talking. We were talking about the contrast between Lynch and Anderson, mm-hmm. and uh, I think this is a good, uh, good transition actually, because one of the things that the last time we we I watched uh, Wild at Heart by David Lynch, of course, and one of the things that struck me about it was just how kind of wild the film is, for want of a better term, is kind of all over the place. It feels mm-hmm. very loose. Yes. And it comes together the more you think about it. But there are scenes in that film that feel disconnected from everything else. A lot of ideas. A lot of ideas. And sometimes it feels like the ideas outrun Lynch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exciting. But anyone also who's seen either of the Twin Peaks shows know Lynch's ideas for visuals don't always match his ideas of creating the, the storyline. So it feels very loose. Anderson's the opposite, of course. Mm-hmm. If you think about directors on a continuum from completely loose, which might be Robert Altman, to completely controlled, which might be uh, Stanley Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick, uh, Hitchcock, mm-hmm. uh, Bong, who directed uh, Parasite. Uh, Anderson's pretty far to that spectrum of the folks who plan everything out. And um, I think it's an interesting contrast to watch those two directors kind of back to back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And also, I think the other thing that you're hitting on and the reason that we have conversations about David Lynch or Wes Anderson is because you're also dealing with two stylists um, and two directors who you are definitely when you sit down, if you you know, it was a blind taste test kind of thing. Uh, you know, referencing our older, <laughs> older listeners who might be familiar <laughs> with such marketing uh, uh, gigas. Um, if you did a sort of sit down and we we're going to play something for you, you could tell a David Lynch movie from, um, you know, the second, you know, you saw it. And the same thing with Anderson, just the way it's constructed, the way it looks, the movements, everything. They well, are stylized. That's the, I mean, Anderson is about as stylistic as you can get, right? And that's part of what people love about him. Is he? And so I, is David Lynch. <laughs> from what I understand, Asteroid City is very much that way, also, right? This is an Anderson movie from scene yes. one. Yes, it is. It is. When I saw French Dispatch, I walked out and said to a friend, that is the most, oh, I came home and told my daughter that that is the most Wes Anderson y Wes Anderson movie that Wes Anderson ever Wes Anderson. <laughs> and, um, I would say this about Asteroid City. I don't want to, I know we're going to be into spoiler territory for the next hour, but since you haven't seen it, it is, it is very, it, it is stylized stylization. And he's really, you know, if before there were sort of, you know, I don't want to say the ticks have become, you know, all encompassing, but the things that he did before to sort of show artifice and do them subtly or you know i think darjeeling limited has an awful lot of you know like we're putting on a performance we're putting on a show you know we're gonna show the title of the movie is actually the train that you're on and you know the the title card is the caboose of the train you know i think that those kinds of things in darjeeling limited were much more subtle that subtlety has gone out the window i mean same thing with grand budapest i mean it sort of says you know everything once you see the hotel it's the opening shot and you see the name of the hotel you know what you're dealing with you know yeah um yeah and okay, so let's let's start by saying uh there will be spoilers for everything but asteroid city in this pod so um to the extent and the, well, anderson movies can certainly be spoiled what am i saying 
um, you have now been warned. Every uh, one of them, kids. So if if you ain't seen Isle of Dogs, that's probably the only one you you can get away with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe Mr. Fox, but we're not going to talk much about Mr. Fox. Oh Love well, movie though. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that make so you specifically chose Darjeeling Limited, and mm-hmm. I'm very curious to hear about why. Oh, I, but, I was I've been waiting for this question. It's the Jason Sachs you know, uh, I know quiz. Why did you choose this movie? Now I, I, I had some, uh, some friends who I hadn't done this podcast with, who did the show with me last week. I don't know if you heard that one. Uh, I had not, and, sorry. and one of the things they said to me was, wow, this is a lot more serious podcast. Than a lot of the ones I do with my other friends. And I'm like, <laughs> is that a compliment or is it an insult? This is just you. This is what I do. Well, I, I will say, as opposed to the other podcasts that we have done together, I'm doing this, uh, I'm I'm doing the full sacks on this one. I did not take a note. I did not write anything <laughs> down. It's all in the old cabeza. If it comes out, it comes out. If it don't, I will. No one will know. So, um, why did I choose Darling Jean Limited? I did think about this, uh, though I didn't write any notes. Um, this is the one that people usually point to as a lesser Anderson. This isn't as good as X, Y, and Z. Whatever you want to put into that category, Darjeeling Limited is always on the other side of the equation. You know, not as good as, lesser, whatever. And I rather enjoy the Darjeeling Limited and having rewatched it now again, I was like, what are people, you know, what are people not seeing? This is delightful, you know? I think it's different than all his movies, which is hard to say, as we were saying, you know, Anderson sort of being a stylist. It's got all the Wes Anderson-iness to it, but this is the sexiest movie he's ever made, you know, mm-hmm. where sex is a part of the story, you know, and, and you know, desires and sexual, you know, feelings and all sort of that. It's part of the Darjeeling Limited that you don't get in most other uh, Anderson movies where physical physical love, physical attraction is uh, talked about and discussed. And I think the other thing is it's kind of a mutt. And who doesn't love a mutt? Um, There's parts and pieces of Darjeeling that, you know, because I think it's sort of this supposed to be, you know, criterion nerd, Satyajit Ray, um, you know, uh, homage, and because, you know, it, it, it's these three jerks, right? These three white guys, these three white jerks in a foreign country being total assholes <laughs> from, you know, the minute they, they're there to when they leave. Um, there's some things that are difficult about it that probably won't play well as the years go on um, that you'll never get in Tenenbaums, certainly, um, and you won't get in Rushmore. But I do think that there are there's some depth. There's a lot of feeling in Darjeeling, and unlike those other movies, I mean, all Wes Anderson movies are about grief and overcoming, or or the journey to overcome grief, or trying to overcome grief, or dealing with grief. And Darjeeling does that, and it does. I wouldn't say it satisfy, you know, sort of wraps everything up in a bow. But it does it in a way that his other movies don't. Namely, there's a mother in this movie. And usually the mother figure, with the exception of Tenenbaums, is not in the story. Um, It's still Angelica Houston in this case. But, um, you know, there's, I'll I'll come to it in a minute. I won't, you know, fire all my bullets. But um, I think there's a very important, in the speech that she gives at the end of the movie to, to to the brothers, I think there's something she says that has a lot to do with um, movies and what movies mean and how we try to express things in film or visually as opposed to words. So I, I and I think that's a big deal to Anderson. I think, you know, the whole movie sort of spins on that speech that um, the mom gives at the end of the movie. Yeah, I like that comment a lot, actually, because the thing that I keep thinking about with this film is it leads to real a real sense of catharsis by the end. Mm-hmm. And it's a film that kind of faints towards being one thing. And then about halfway through, yep. when they get kicked off the train, it kind of becomes something different. Uh, because 
here's these arrogant guys being arrogant guys fighting amongst themselves sleeping with the indian women uh and one of my favorite scenes ever i just think it's a wonderful scene when oh, that's great picks up that great car and woman and they're just so like fun together yeah passion um, and she doesn't she just kind of ignores her handsome sikh husband but anyway <laughs> um when that when they leave the train it kind of feels like the movie becomes something different yeah and that's why i said it was a mutt it's like different it, parts of different things it is yeah but it's it really it moves towards catharsis right mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. it's interesting the way the movie moved towards catharsis because as you said the they they they're seeking their mother to talk to about to talk to her about their father dying and obviously the mother and father had, had a terrible relationship between them before and the kids are scarred by it and we get a real sense of the kids scars they're carrying around um the fact that they never quite get the the full answers from her that she gives them the speech but then she's never able to satisfy them as they are it's like this fascinating catharsis because it's essentially saying you may seek your answers but you're never going to find your answers and it's soon after that yeah they're they're literally carrying around a dozen or so giant bags right monograms uh, how clear is this uh, how clear is this analogy bags. right they're carrying yeah, yeah. <laughs> massive amounts of baggage and at the end when they finally jump back on the train they've gotten rid of all their baggage they've thrown away yes. their baggage the metaphor right? works okay we talk see about it. <laughs> hammering you over the head with the plot point but uh yeah, yeah. i found it to be really deeply satisfying that yeah. they get catharsis by not getting catharsis and i think the other thing you're saying about she sort of leads them to believe that the answers that you're never going to get the answers that you seek, the answers that you may get are not the answers you want to hear. And it's not, it's not so much that you're unsatisfied with them. It's just not, it's never going to be satisfying. I think that's the point of the story is it's her, her whole speech is it's never going to be satisfying. I I will say that the other thing that I had forgotten about, because it's been a little while since I had seen it is I love I love Hotel Chevalier. I've always thought that was a great little short story. And just, you know, here's how you tell a story on film in eight minutes or whatever it is. And beginning, middle, and end. And make it, yeah, and just make it totally it's on satisfying. YouTube, by the way. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. It's also on the Criterion DVD. But uh-huh. anyway, I, I, I digress. I think Hotel Chevalier is great. But if you if you don't see that part and you just see it from the beginning... It seems like Anderson commenting. I mean, here you see, you know, Bill Murray in the back of this cab. He's, you know, sort of a businessman. He's got this little hat on. He's running through to catch his train. And then this is all, you know, visual. Who who sprints past old Bill Murray to tell a new story? That's why, you know, in ending one era um, yes. of Anderson's career, moving to a new era, I'm not saying that the Bill Murray era is passing to the Adrian Brody era, but I think it's Anderson also saying like, we used to do this thing and everyone likes this thing and this is what you expect, but I got some new shit to show you. And I think that's kind of what that scene shows you. Not to mention, and before I forget, because I didn't write anything down, (laughs) maybe perhaps outside Tenenbaums, (laughs) outside Tenenbaums, Darjeeling Limited is a, a hot take Anderson's best soundtrack. The Ooh. the kink songs in yeah. and, and the kink song at the minute that they that Brody sprints past uh Bill Murray uh is just perfect. Just absolutely positively, you know, 10 out of 10, no notes. I love that. I could watch that for the rest of my life and never get bored. And I just started giggling watching that scene because it's like <laughs> such a sleight of hand, right? You gotta yeah. Bill Murray, Bill fucking Murray, right? Wes Anderson and Bill Murray, everyone knows they're they're the pair. They're the Anderson and Murray finally have made the connection that Bill Murray has never had with any other director. And right. it builds beautifully. And then you're ready for him to get on the train. And then nope, nope, it's Adrian Brody. And you're like, wow, <laughs> Adrian you really kind of faked me out. You really yeah. kind of changed what I expected. And it's just like such a clever moment. It kind of sets the tone too. Like things are, you may think you think things are a certain way. You may think you think that things are think. Ah, anyway, no, no, I go hear back you. to your Anderson, the most Andersony Anderson that's ever. Anderson. <laughs> uh, this is what you do to me, Keith Silva. 
Oh, well, I was just looking for, I was going through my Tinks Chronicles because the song was not coming to my head. Um, and I know it's on this record. Uh, beautiful red vinyl. Yes, thank you. Um, is it <laughs> yes, this I time tomorrow? Song. Is that what, is that the song I'm thinking of? I think so. Yeah. And, and, and just, uh, just absolutely... I love it. I love when that song kicks on and, you know, he's running with the bags, which then will pay off later. Um, you know, at the end of the movie, it's a beautiful, again, if you take Hotel Chevalier out, it's a beautiful bookend to the story of them carrying the bags and then leaving the bags behind. Like you, you absolutely. I think the thing that is annoying and you'll see this in Asteroid City in some ways, Asteroid City hits you, the metaphors aren't as obvious, and you can sort of roll your eyes, oh my god, so they dropped their baggage, and now they can move on with their lives, literally and figuratively, and yep, it's a metaphor, and yep, we all get it, and yes, it's obvious, but there's something about making that artifice even bigger, and putting it outside, because that's Anderson's big thing, is he loves to sort of set up barriers and you know uh preludes and little boxes and sort of oh this is act one and we're showing you it's act one as opposed to you just figuring out where the act breaks are you know that's his big thing and that formalism idea that everyone loves it's more and more obvious as he's continued to go on there's more and more chapter titles there's chapter titles in grand budapest i, I don't think there are in darjeeling but there's definitely moments where now we're going to tell you this now we're going to tell you that that right. that maybe is a little too that that is that as bad as sort of the obvious hit you over the head metaphor or not i i don't know i'm not making a judgment here i'm just saying well i was i was thinking about how the formalism battles with the emotions in this movie mm. the emotions are pretty grand right yeah and, and right imagine, on the surface yeah and you can imagine a lynch director <laughs> having people kind of you know cask doing a guernica with things and screaming with the pain they're feeling yeah. and in fact everyone is hiding them and the fact owen wilson for example is carrying around all the scars and that adrian brody can't take off his dad's sunglasses um schwarzman grows it grows his mustache they all change their appearance in some way in some way mask their grief but also get more in touch with their grief yeah. so this formalism contrast with the emotions in a way that i think doesn't always pay off in an anderson movie mm. but in this case i feel like it really does kind of work well in that we get this kind of cover to get yep. to feel the emotions right it's a little bit masked and it's especially true actually in in grand budapest right where because everything is dressed up in this candy color design in this case, strong yellows and blues, right? And Darjeeling. Mm -hmm. Pinks. And the pinks, right. Uh, you can dwell on that. At the same time, underneath that surface is all this red, you know, this bright emotion color. Mm -hmm. And um, I really enjoy that, that like, contrast. And there's also the idea that here's these people who are going on this quest. They're going to the supposedly mystic land. Um, and they're never able to actually even have a reasonable quest they can never escape themselves again it might be a little bit obvious mm -hmm. but uh i like I, that yeah, yeah. I, I, you know i get metaphors i like obvious metaphors as much <laughs> as the next guy um and and i think you know if there were a title card that says um i'm trying to remember the characters names francis peter and jack you know drop their baggage you know before you see it would sort of you know it would be andersonian and give you that sort of you know chapter title everything's a book everything is constructed but just to see it i think works works really well um just it's a movie so let's watch what happens obvious or not yeah yeah, I enjoy it as a movie, as this thing that this mm -hmm. author is really presenting to us. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a the weird case too, like Aunt, 
Okay, so let me ask you this. After seeing Asteroid City, do you feel like Anderson has gotten... Oh, this is a silly question. Is he <laughs> is he more stylized than he should be? No, this is who he is. This is who he is. This is his way of doing things. I, I think he, you know... <laughs> so I, I'll be like the saying, crew... I, to, use, to talk I'll... about our friend Lynch, it's like saying, oh, you know, Lynch's movies are just too hard to understand. Oh, fuck. I, 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 mean, I, yeah. I will be the crude one here. And I think... Somewhere around whatever. Oh, Grand Budapest is a good example. Like, you know, Wes Anderson is up his own ass. That's the other part of it that really kind of, you know, to be crude about it, he just keeps going and doing more of, you know, what he's known for as if he's like, oh, you think I can't top what I did in this? That's why when I saw Fantastic Mr. Fox, I said, stop motion animation is this guy's milieu. He should just make stop motion from here on out. And then I saw Isle of Dogs and said, please make another live action movie, Wes Anderson. <laughs> um, and so all those things that, you know, he's known for, he seems to double and triple down with on every movie. And, you know, Grand Budapest, you know, we'll get there, but it's a great example of, you know, the most formalized, you know, balanced, everything is, you know, deep focus, you know, with backgrounds and things moving. And then also, you know, he does sort of break out of that a little bit in Grand Budapest, not so much in Darjeeling. The one thing in Darjeeling that he doesn't do, which comes later in his career, is puppets. A lot of puppets uh, and, and puppetry and just using animation in a way that is... um interesting to the story i mean i love the toboggan you know snow chase in uh grand budapest you don't get that kind of thing in darjeeling you get trains you get more trains dude loves his trains but um and, and a train set too again something where you can set it up the way you want it that you can make the train stop where you want it to people can you know you can pretend people come off the train and investigate the town you can set up little towns. It's all, you know, a, a, a dollhouse, as people always say. And I don't think that's a knock at Anderson. I think that's Anderson. And I think as he's continuing his career, he's just done that. You know, he's just tried to top himself every time. Well, the movies are literally timeless, too. Right. They could it, it could take place in 1940 or today. Maybe not 1940. Not not today. That I guess somebody Soderbergh recently spoke out about um, why are all these movies set in the past? I mean, Asteroid City set in the 50s. Darjeeling is set maybe in the 90s, early 2000s. Basically, what Soderbergh says is it's all ruined by cell phones. And the minute you have a cell phone and you have satellites telling you exactly where you are on the face of the planet, you don't have to, you don't get cool sequences like the train is lost. How is it lost? It's on rails. You know, just, I love that sequence where the train stops and is mm -hmm. lost in Darjeeling and you wouldn't do that anymore. Jack would have whipped out the latest app iPhone and told you exactly where you were or Francis would have got, you know, somebody to do it for him. Yeah, they and, never would have gotten lost or they'd have to have some contrivance where, oh, right. there's no cell phones out here. <laughs> the service, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and so cell phones I, I ruined that kind of. I think that's lazy. I mean, we watch plenty. I've watched plenty of modern movies that play with that. But I agree. Um, I agree. I'm just that was what Soderbergh said that setting movies in the past, these sort of auteurist directors, um, or you know, are basically setting all their movies in a past prior to cell phones because they can't get past the, you know, the knowing where you are or tracking somebody down or something like that you know take take that with as many grains of salt as you wish yeah i'm playing with a different theory on that which is if people are constantly remaking the movie that's living inside their head just different right. flavors of it yep um at some point the modern world is not what they're thinking about they're thinking about the things that affected them right when they were younger yep and the older these directors get and anderson's what in his 40s now 50s 52 51, born 1969 the same okay. year as my sister was born so um yeah he's um he he's like he's got one foot in the modern world and one foot in his memories or his imagination mm -hmm. and um 
I think it's normal for someone to really cast back 15, 20 years or to the, I should say to their adolescence for the things that are inspiring that to them. Right. I mean, and, and he's the, not doing bottle rocket anymore. which was Right. Uh, and he's making a statement about, but he's making a statement about the past as opposed to making a statement about today, you know, yeah. Wes Anderson talking about today, you're probably never going to get that. He's, he's going to set his stories or at least every movie to this point has been in a, in, in in a past 20th century past but um in that time frame yeah bottle rocket probably was contemporary at the time it was supposed to take place in the present our present day at least it's a starting startlingly strange movie to watch now because it feels so normal and because the wilson brothers look so young <laughs> yeah yeah wow yeah. anyway um okay so you're talking about the past here's my beautiful segue Grand Go. Budapest resurrects the past in this incredibly powerful way. I think this might be my favorite Anderson film. Hmm. Interesting. Talk about Annenbaum's, that. I love the family stuff in that is wonderful. Gene Hackman is fantastic in that film. Mm-hmm. But Grand Budapest just has so many wonderful qualities to it. Um, I like the kind of stories inside stories inside story structure of it. Mm -hmm. And I think the core characters of fine and I'll call them zero, whether it's, uh, whether it's Murray Abraham or Tony Ravioli. Yeah. uh, They're totally mangled his name and zero's um, evolution and growth um, are just so wonderful and it says so much about past present future love hate rivalry uh war uh passion for places individualism there's just so much there yeah it's a rich text as they say it is a rich text yes and i also think of all his you know what do you want to call him later you know that's the one that i think um Grand Budapest has the best casting. I mean, Ray Fine's just uh he's just perfect. He's perfect as, you know, Gustave, uh Monsieur Gustave, and so is Tony Ravioli. He's excellent, just like nailed it. Like, yeah, that is who that dude is. Um, and just beautiful, beautiful casting in that movie. I I I I I love all those characters and I love all those actors and they nail it um, every single time. And he was, you know, sort of, you know, Anderson has his players and when a new name joins the, 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 the company, you sort of have to say, Oh, okay. What's so-and-so going to bring to this? And you're like, Oh, Ray Fines, Yeah, I get it. <laughs> the, yeah. Just the way that Mizier met, Messieurs Gustave and Zero don't ever change costume, even as everything else around them keeps changing. Yeah, I don't know. I found that to be so powerful as like a, like like implying who these people really are at their courts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, 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 but they're cha- they are changing, but they're not changing at the same time. They're right. growing. They're they're evolving themselves. They're becoming more uh, involved in the world instead of being uh, uh, more self centered. Uh, it's just so beautiful how the how all of this builds upon itself. And yeah, in terms of the cast, yeah, I mean, we even get Tilda Swinton in a small role. Bob Balaban is in there for a minute. We don't get too much, uh, too much of. Um, uh, we do get a little too much Edward Norton to me. Uh, oh, I see. I, Owen Wilson though. Um, yeah, who I am getting a little tired of seeing over and over in in these movies. Um, <laughs> but the but finds and. Abraham and Revel Lorry, Revel Lorry, I think is how I say his name, okay. uh, are just so wonderful. And then Matthew yeah. Almerek as that awful. Uh, oh, the X. Yes, oh, and okay. and, and it is and you do get Adrian Brody uh, in a bad guy role, which I don't like Adrian Brody in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like him as I, you know, I I like him so much as Peter in in Darjeeling. That when I see him as um, 
uh dimitri in grand budapest i'm like ah go back to peter he was he was a jerk but at least he was you know into taking weird indian drugs and stealing snakes or buying cobras you know not this sort of you know pent up kind of asshole kid (laughs) privileged you know son of you know wannabe fascist quickly to adopt fascism (laughs) i go hot and cold with brody there's other movies i've seen him that i just have trouble appreciating him Mm. uh there's just a fakeness about him that sometimes bothers me uh yeah i I, I haven't seen a lot of his movies i've only seen the really i've seen the pianist and he's you know won an academy award for that for good reason so um the one thing uh what it's worth i have the same feeling about adam driver and i don't know why Oh wow, that's a tough one. Since he's in every every movie, a lot of the movies that you see are are are, 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 are certainly seen. Yeah, I, I guess the other thing with um, I was thinking about Darjeeling, not to totally abandon or to get off that train of thought, is so clever. Yes, is are the brothers <laughs> are are the I was sort of watching this and being like how are these guys different than the siblings on succession now granted i'm no lover of the of the tv show succession i I thought you watched it jason i'm a big fan of that show okay so good i can ask you this then so the whole point of the siblings in succession is they're 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 trauma they're traumatized children right they've never sort of gotten past their childhood uh traumas and they're always constantly you know just they're definitely not good people and they're not good siblings to to each other or they are in a very strange twisted kind of fun tv way i don't think the wilson uh i should say yeah the whitman brothers are much different i think if you took those three guys and threw them into succession it works the moments when they fight with each other, there's really a sense of their extreme annoyance with each other. Yeah, the way they treat the staff, you know, the but way they I treat think, other people. <laughs> I think they're all dealing with their grief in a way that separates them. Mm. They're all, they're always different people. The women. If you brothers. weren't told they're brothers, you wouldn't assume they're brothers. Okay, that, interesting. that was my very first thought when I saw them together. Hmm. Is that there's really very little very little physical resemblance between them sure that's so um you know as brothers they don't make sense in the way obviously the wilson brothers would Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but we're told they're brothers so to me like okay i want to always point and and then they're all mangled in some way uh there's the injury there's the glasses there's the mustache in some way they've modified themselves right so i see in all that like them like just trying to find their way and in fi- trying to find their way, they're just really pushing each other away from each other. I mean, they do mm-hmm. literally fight, right? Right, right. And <laughs> and do you see succession in that? Or do you see that two totally different things? Succession, they're always... There's an interesting scene in the last episode of Succession. Where... Spoilers for Succession, everybody. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's not much of a, a spoiler. There's a scene at the end, last episode of Succession... Um, the the company their dad used to own is about to get taken over and they're the, setting up a crucial board meeting. It's the night before the board meeting and the family's together at their mother's house to just kind of get ready for things. And they're mm-hmm. just hanging out in the kitchen and they start just goofing like kids will, would do. And they're just playing around. They're throwing food at each other and they're mixing oh, okay. up this the horrible, milkshake. yeah, this horrible milkshake that looks like painful to eat. And there, you can see like this pat, this love for that they have for each other. And so, uh, the the three the three core characters, um, in, in uh, the tragedy of the, what happens to the three core characters in succession to me is that their ambitions can. Uh, collide with their love for each other and their ambitions triumph over it mm. which in some way is so they they give up their actual the actual love and trust and happiness and to some measure peace they could have in order to, to go after material gains it's that that's what makes them really tragic characters right and they were never taught 
to love each other. They were always taught to compete. and Yeah, they were taught to compete. So in this very strange way, they are honoring the, the wishes of their father. Good point. Uh, and especially in the last season, they're also dealing with mourning, which right. is profound in their cases. Right. And Whitman style profound. They don't have the baggage, but they have the baggage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, well, and there's all the other things they're carrying around from there. Right. Uh, in Darjeeling, well, you can tell me. Do you think it's all, it's all, I think it's under the surface. What's they, under the surface? The, the all, all the lifelong of love and hate and struggle and fights and whatever they've been through. Um do you get a sense of how long these people lived in the same house as each other? That's a great question. I get I get the sense from the movie if I just if I don't add anything to it and just take the facts that were told in the movie that they probably either went their separate ways or went off to boarding school or whatever rich people do. It seems to me they lived together 10 years and they might have lived together the first 10 years of their life. And then once they hit 11 or 12, you know, teenage years, tween, teen, they they were separate from each other. And, you know, that would be my guess if I were reading into it. So, yeah, maybe they lived together as kids, but not as teenagers or adults or very limited, because I just don't think that's not how they that's not how they were raised. You know? Yeah. Well, mom went off to India when they were relatively young. Right. I think so. Uh, she's not there certainly when their father dies and i take them all to be in their late 20s early 30s i'm bad with age so yeah. um, um so they're relative strangers to each other so i also took right. it as these these people who have some sorts of lives all trying to come together to make sense of of this tragedy that happened and they're like it's kind of like getting together with old buddies where you're like let's try and resurrect old times or let's try and honor dad by spending some time together and kind of trying to come to some measure of peace on things. Yeah. That's kind of interesting about Darjeeling is that you have to, you have to sort of make some jumps in logic about it's clear that Francis brought them there, the Owen Wilson character, but why and for what purpose? Cause I think everything is again, getting into the Andersonness of it. Everything is performative. Everything is, you know, for show yeah, right. whatever core truth is there is locked behind you know several different layers of whatever artifice and i think that you know it, that part it doesn't really matter why they're there they're there and that's the point not sort of well, what brought them there i mean if Adrian so I'll, Brody, I'll, I'll, okay. I'll offer that the key the key scene then when it comes to him is he's wearing the bandages and then right. later in the movie he takes off the bandages and they all get to see his actual scars right and then kind of together they put them back on although we don't actually see the bandages getting put back on right right um and so if we're going to take what we're actually showing as being the, the text um it's someone who's broken who um needed to show his brokenness in order to feel some sort of connection yeah, exactly. And I think that's the same thing. I mean, it's sort of all the big information in that story in you know that the brothers share is all secondhand and it's all supposed to be a secret. You know, Alice is pregnant. You know, Adrian Brody goes on a trip to India and leaves his eight-month pregnant, you know, seven-month yeah. pregnant wife behind to go see his, see his brother. Now, that in itself you know, and, and maybe estranged as, as you've, you know, sort of suggested, um, you know, to, to leaves his entire, you know, pregnant wife and family, you know, for his first kid clearly, but so there's not other children, but, you know, behind to go to India to do what, and then doesn't tell her, you know, I mean, this is the ultimate, this is not a good guy. You know, I'm not trying to say you shouldn't cheer for, it, these are hard characters to like because they're all very likable and just they're not good people i mean the characters on succession are not good people but mm -hmm. everyone loves the characters themselves um even though th they may not be the best human beings ever but that's kind of the point and i think these brothers are the same thing as opposed to some of the other anderson characters that you 
you love right away. You love Luke Wilson and you love uh, Margo um, in, in Royal Tenenbaums and Ben Stiller and all that. You, you really cheer for those characters. They're decent people. They're, they're trying to do a decent thing for each other. And these, these brothers just don't have it. And maybe that's the we, other thing too. We love Ralph Fiennes and we love Zero. Because they're a family, because they love each other, right? He's a rogue, but he cares for people too. Deeply. It's, it's, it's a service to him. He's taking it as his job to care for people, literally to take care of all their needs, whatever those needs may be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mentally, physically, spiritually. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, he, he, that he is his job. You know, he is his life. That is his life. Deep, deep pleasure to do that. Yeah, and then mentoring zero. Yep, to do the same. Right, results in this also being a person who we just both these people we just admire so much. Right, right for being so committed to who they are, what they love, what's important to them, making decisions that hurt them financially and personally, but end up benefiting the larger world they care for. Yeah, and also willing to take one for the team. The Whitman brothers are never going to jail for each other, but um, Monsieur Gustave is definitely goes to jail for what he believes, and he's no candy ass. So <laughs> he's important. no candy ass. <laughs> important to note. <laughs> <laughs> God, that scene where they're digging under the dirt. Uh, I, I'm sure he's trying to like remind us of uh, of Shawshank in a way, and it just cracked me up thinking about. Well, you see, the the clip in the beginning in Hotel Chevalier is. Uh, Jack is watching a scene from Stalag. Oh, that's Darjeeling. Sorry, I'm mixing. I'm mixing my movies up here. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're supposed to be. It's it's a prison break. You know, it's it's a Wes Anderson prison break. So there's whimsy and there's you know silly little tools, and it doesn't really matter because we've all know what prison breaks are. So I'm going to show you, you know, the the fun prison break, the most fun prison break ever. <laughs> With the one cameo in Grand Budapest that sets me off, which is Harvey Keitel. Why does Harvey shows Keitel up, set you off? Uh, it just, he's, it's fun to play the Wes Anderson cameo game. It's fun to figure out when Bill Murray's going to pop up, you know, uh, in these different movies or what's going to happen. You're like, oh, where's Owen Wilson going to show up? You know, in Grand Budapest, you're like, I know he's here. Where's he going to now? How's he going to show up? Bob Balaban, another great example. Uh, great Moonrise Kingdom when his the, his role in Moonrise Kingdom, more than a cameo, obviously, uh, mm -hmm. one of the characters in the movie. But I, he just sort of shows up and you're just like, oh, Harvey Keitel is one of the prisoners. OK, great. You know, I, I would say that um, in Asteroid City, it's Jeff Goldblum. He's the new... Bill Murray, he, he's the new oh, yeah. uh, uh, banner carrier, flag bearer for um, when's he going to pop up in, in in a Wes Anderson movie. Um, I'm going doing... through the string lately, too, where it's either Harvey Keitel or Willem Dafoe is in like every movie I watch. <laughs> it's a freaking bizarre. Oh, does Willem Dafoe, Mean, is he? Mean Streets he's... Come Alive or something. No, isn't he in uh, Wild at Heart? Doesn't he have a cameo in Wild at Heart? Willem Dafoe? Yeah, he's, he's essentially the villain in Wild at Heart. Oh, okay. All right, he's the villain. Okay, I thought I thought he popped up in a weird... I thought when they go... I, I'm remembering Wild at Heart. There's a scene where they show up and all these large women are dancing around. I thought Willem Dafoe's like in charge of the... He is, and then, the he, then he becomes the villain from that point on. Oh, right? okay. All right, so my memory with, isn't with that the, bad. With the file down teeth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay, good. So my memory isn't isn't as bad as I was thinking it was. Good, <laughs> no, it good, isn't. good for me. Good for me. No prevagen here. Um. <laughs> so uh, I want to talk about one thing in Grand Budapest that obsessed me from the moment I saw it and the lengths I went personally to see it. So, had I ever written anything about Grand Budapest, my essay would have been about the Mendel's box. Because uh, I think the Mendel's box is as much a metaphor as the luggage in Darjeeling Limited. And just the way the box is constructed, how you pull a ribbon 
and you know all the pieces fold up together and then you tie it off or whatever and that box to me is Wes Anderson and Wes Anderson movies just this incredible engineered construction that you know boxes something in compartmentalizes something in this case it happens to be sweet I don't think all the things that Anderson you know, compartmentalizes and boxes up and puts in his little dollhouse rooms is sweet, but Mendel certainly is. And there was a show at a tiny little college, Wheaton College, that's about 20 minutes from where my parents live in Massachusetts. And they were doing a show of props. And my daughters went to see clothes from the original Broadway production of Hamilton, and there was also Anderson, there were drawings from of Grand Budapest Hotel, all the architectural drawings of the hotel in its different phases throughout oh. the years um, that they had gone to great lengths and they had a Mendel's box. And that's what I went for. I just went to see the Mendel's box because I oh. think that of all the props and all the Wes Anderson movies, besides a Cobra, I think it would be cool to have the Mendel's box. So do you know the trivia about the Mendel's box? No, no, but tell apparently me. Apparently there is a bakery in Berlin that Billy Wilder used to love to go to. Of course. It's the first place he would go to whenever he got off the plane. It was it wasn't Mendel's, but it was something relatively similar to that. And that was his that was the ultimate place. So this meta joke becomes even more of a meta joke because here's Anderson making a comment about the predilection of one of his favorite directors. Which, of course, to me is like the ultimate because I'm such a geek for this sort of thing. Yeah, same here. And I mean, of all the guys for him to, you know, to talk about, you know, Billy Wilder, you know, not a stylist in the sense of Anderson or Kubrick or any of those other sort of people who get thrown into that. But, you know, easily one of the greatest directors of the 20th century and of all time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So the box is a metaphor for Anderson, particularly in the way he like thinks about the world. It's a it's a gift that opens up with this mm-hmm. magical string attached to it. Yep. And all the way it's constructed about how the flaps all because when they pull, it, it's a very quick shot, but they untie the box and it sort of opens, you know, almost doesn't open like a flower, but you know, all the pieces sort of flop open and then you pull the string and they all close and the flap, the flap, the the sides all form and then a flap goes over the top. Like I said, it's about five seconds in the movie, probably less than five seconds where you actually see the box constructed. But to me, the box is key and the box is, you know, it's sort of what's in the box, you know, sort of thinking, you know, I think that's all the things that a movie is, you know, a, their, their constructions, uh, you know, engineered things, things that are put together. And for Anderson, you know, it's got a little whimsy. It's pink. Um, you know, it, it comes with a ribbon. You have to have the ribbon to make the box work. So I, again, if I wrote it out, I could probably, you know, edit myself <laughs> down and change it and throw out all the stupid stuff I'm saying, but with no notes, podcasting oh here. my god well yeah, okay. just I, I remembered it but i just said talked. it just just talking off the top off the top of the dome next i think that I'm box taking is notes, really that's important. it that's it all right you persuaded me <laughs> i think that box is really important more so than just to sort of save the day um and i mean another perfectly cast character of saoirse ronan i mean maybe the most delightful of all uh Anderson's you know characters I mean hard to beat Zero and Monsieur Gustav but damn Agatha is pretty charming yes Agatha is just wonderful and Saoirse Ronan nails it I mean she is she's just great you want to box her up and you know put a ribbon around her and take her with you another one of his new characters yeah another another new, new people right yeah does not show up in Asteroid City Spoilers oh, for okay. for cameos out of the field from Asteroid City. Uh, no search for Ronan. So the boxes also carry gifts. Yep. They're a little bit sweet. Yep. They are ways to kind of ingratiate yourself with people who might not otherwise like you, like 
Nazis. <laughs> right. Uh, and they it, hold intricate pastries. Then they're extremely intricate pastries. Yeah. And they're all constructed. You know, they're made, they're layered, they are they're, well see, thought through. Yes, yes, yes. And they're so you're, colorful, you're, they're yep. bright. Yeah. Wow. So as symbols, uh, and and they are unique in and of themselves too. Correct. As symbols of our friend Mr. Anderson. That's a great chat out there. There's something there. There's something there. Like I said, there's something there. Is that, that's the way I've always felt. And that's why I think for me, Grand Budapest, if, if we want to call the early Anderson movies, um, Tenenbaums and Rushmore, you know, what's going to be on the first byline of Wes Anderson's uh, obituary many, 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 many years from now, let's hope it's going to be Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums. I think Grand Budapest is up there. I think it's the, you know, the closest to he's ever done to recapturing those early days. I think so. It's so stylized, but he uses the stylization in a way that really builds the tension. You always get the sense of there being a little bit of a joke, but also there being a real powerful feeling of fear or anger, whatever the emotion may be. And I think of that amazing chase scene that you were talking about before we started the call, where, you know, he's skiing down the hill and they're chasing him down the hill, right? And and it just flies along at this incredible pace and and they never quite reach each other, but it, it, it feels just so artfully done. And all done in miniature, practical effects, no CGI, you know, and just, I think, again, I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is the other pivotal movie in his uh, oeuvre, um, to really sound like a dork. But (laughs) I I think that, 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 you know, that taught him something, that working with miniatures, working with stop motion animation, he had that in him. He could do that and do it really well and still make you feel something. I mean, you know... You feel something in Mr. Fox. And I think, you know, in that ride, you definitely that that, you know, because there's the other thing where the kid at the gas station, again, one pump gas station, spoilers for Asteroid City, um, comes up again and again with him. This sort of, you know, one horse town, no stoplights, you know, one gas station, one gas pump, whatever that Americana that he's trying to capture or thinks he's trying to capture um comes out again and again that he can't even do it in a, in Europe he's got the same sort of you know mm-hmm. one pump and i absolutely love the fact that the character in, from moonrise kingdom is the kid who's pumping the gas um i think i think they call him mcqueen i think he's supposed to be like a steve mcqueen type character he is in moonrise kingdom i the think west, he's mcqueen the west anderson extended universe yes yes and he pops up here, and I love it, and I love seeing him. And he's like, "You here for skiing or sledding?" And you know, it's <laughs> right? a throwaway the line pointing either direction. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a throwaway line. It's stupid, <laughs> and then it ends up being, you know, the big, the big set piece in the in the movie. So yeah, it's oh, wonderful. Good point. Yeah, and that's just good writing. That's just good storytelling. It is good storytelling. And that's the thing that's really the common denominator in his best movies is they feel like they're just cooked enough where they feel fresh, but they don't feel like they're underdone either. Maybe this is another way that they reflect the pastry. Ah, the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Oh, my God. See, this yeah. is what happens when you don't take notes. <laughs> you make these You make these connections. Make these connections. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, I, I also think that, you know, the other thing that's cool about Grand Budapest is in science fiction, there's always talk about the world and laying out the rules of the world. And I absolutely love the fact that, you know, you see these characters played by different actors at different stages of their life. And, you know, again, casting is so key in Grand Budapest is like F. Murray Abraham, I could listen to him all day, right? I could listen to him tell those stories of of Zero um, again and again and again and never get bored. And he's telling you know, this younger version of the author whose story kicks off the whole movie. You know, you see that girl come in, you're like, I thought this was about a hotel and who's the author. And then, you know, it it goes on from there. Again, those, those, 
those sort of barriers, not barriers, but the dollhouse that Anderson, you know, connects of, you know, those different levels and different layers of, of story. You know, first we meet the author when he's dead. <laughs> we meet him when he's a statue and then we meet him when he's old and then we meet him when he's young and on and on and on. And I just think, you know, it makes Grand Budapest just so charming and just gives you the setting and the world right away where you buy it and you don't have or have to, you know, it's some old European hotel somewhere, you know, who the hell cares? And there's a funicular because it's Wes Anderson. Right. Um, you yeah, know, you so this beautiful 3d model and you're just like kind of swept into it in a way that wouldn't make sense in any other sort of movie. If this was, James Bond or something, you'd say, oh, okay, fine. But because it's Anderson, because it's just pulled off in this clever way, like it just makes a, such a different impression on you. Yeah. And it's the pretty. Stylization really works so well inside this film. Yeah. Just it's same thing. I mean, I think when he, I think he's a very architectural kind of thinker. I think, you know, if Wes Anderson wasn't a director, he would have been an architect. Yeah. You know, just the, the Tenenbaum house. And even uh, the house in, uh, what's it called? World, Lake, Islands, End, something End, Woods End, in Moonrise Kingdom is the same thing. The house is a construction. It's the box, right? It's the Mendel's box all over again, you know, where you see the camera pull through and then Bill Murray puts the table down, just like uh, from Citizen Kane. Um, it's just It's just perfect, just absolutely perfect. And just that whole construction idea is is beautiful, and it's and it's it's in there in spades in uh, Grand Budapest. Everything is every time every age of the hotel too, you know the atrium, all yeah. of it. Oh, and the way that the hotel is aged when we first see it too, and it's got very nineteen seventies eighties feel to it. It's a it's so run down. It's a place for lonely people to go and have their solitude yeah. and all these little touches just give it so much life. Yeah. It's, it's almost a sense of this building itself has lived. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's a character in the movie. No, no question about it. Just as those other houses and structures are characters in the movie, even the camp in Moonrise Kingdom is a character in the story. This other, you know, construction. The, the um, train in Darjeeling. Yeah. 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 yeah I want to mention definitely. one more thing before we cut out, which is sure. Um, I think it's pretty clear from our discussion Grand Budapest is a superior film to Darjeeling. Darjeeling yes. is wonderful. Yeah. Grand Budapest is really fantastic. Yeah. It's got everything. Uh, but, but the moment where my jaw literally dropped, you know where I'm getting at. Darjeeling at, at towards the very end when we get the scene of the moving image and we get characters sitting in each train car oh. as, <laughs> as the story kind of winds itself up. Yeah, it's the epilogue. so elegant. There's Bill Murray. Yeah, Bill he, Murray made a train. He's sitting he there in the, the train, train yep. looking a little bit befuddled. And then we see each of the brothers. And like it does such a beautiful job of like tying everything together in this completely artificial way that somehow feels so well literally moving <laughs> it feels so literally moving well done hats off <laughs> <laughs> wow that was completely unintentional did you feel the same way like i uh, literally had a jaw drop moment seeing that well i think what's beautiful about that you know i called it an epilogue just a second ago is the last car right is the mom tells you don't come here now wait till the spring there's a tiger on the loose you know yeah that's bullshit do you think that's bullshit and they show him that so you're going through the train cars and we finally get to see the tiger and it's a puppet you know i think uh -huh. that's the other thing that is just wonderful i mean it, that's that anderson touch is that you know it's it's serious and we're seeing these characters and sort of where they're at and we see sweet lime i know that's not a real name but we see them back on the train and where everyone's life is and we see the tiger in the jungle like we haven't forgotten about the tiger like he's there there's that wonderful anderson whimsy you know the same thing with um one of my favorite bits in budapest is the you know society of cross keys yes. it, it's this little detail yes. that you know you when you go back and you see it and i can't believe we're this far into our conversation 
uh, see, this is what happens when you don't take notes. Every what for me, every Wes Anderson movie that I've seen and enjoyed, it's only on a second viewing, a second or a third viewing, where I really understand the movie. The first time I walked out of Zisu, uh, the first time I walked out of Moonrise Kingdom, certainly Asteroid City, um, with the exception of Fantastic Mr. Fox, that I loved from frame one, and Grand Budapest, Darjeeling Limited was definitely one of those that only on repeated viewings does the movie make more sense and does it help you understand it. And I think that's one of the keys of Anderson is it's that timelessness that you may have, that you referred to, Jason, or you've been talking about is these movies are rewatchable and not because you know what's going to happen and you're anticipating what's happening, but that they are rewatchable in the sense that you learn more every time. And I think that's why we do this. That's why we podcast. That's why we have conversations is that they're rewatchable and you can watch them again and again and see something new, see something you haven't seen. This time around for me, there was this shot in somewhere in Darjeeling when they're in the marketplace the first time, there's a kid with a gun mm-hmm. holding a gun, you know, he's in the background, but you can see him pointing and holding a gun. And I was like, I've never seen that before. You know, it's a stupid movie nerd thing, but that, that kind of stuff, you know, gives me a thrill. And, you know, there, there's another shot of a kid holding a gun in Budapest. And I was like, is this an Anderson thing? Should I go back and watch, you know, oh my God, find like all that. the shots where kids are holding guns towards the camera. Wow. I'm like, gotta have that. Um, I, I, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about the moment in, uh, I won't, I can't remember her whole name, but the house that uh, DeGoff and taxis uh, that they inhabit, that that home, that manor, that castle, you know, that they live in is just another sort of construction that is just wild and just probably none of the architecture makes sense. You know, they all, every room is gigantic, you know, and it's servants, you know, these little tiny servants hallways and <laughs> right. You know, when you tour these grand, uh, they must have grand hotels. It's just, it's not all new money, but you must have some mansions in the Northwest that are they're oh, yeah. like these, yeah, lumber barons or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And and you tour those homes and you walk through them and you're like, how did, you know, four people or even 10 people ever inhabit this space? You know, well, they didn't. There were, for every person, there was 10 servants backing them up, you know, in and you see these homes and that that house is just as impressive as as the hotel and it's just you know she she's trying to recreate the grand budapest in her own home mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. you know i just i just think that that set is as impressive as anything else in in the movie and, and that's always been true of his movies right you think of the house in royal tenenbaums yep all the way on up every place is kind of this almost like a clearly imagined dream landscape Right, and, and right. to me, I having not seen uh, the newest movie, uh, like I think about the, the landscape of the uh, camp in Moonrise Kingdom, or the way I mean, the way he plays with places in French Dispatch, especially, yeah, where they are literally unreal, but real, uh, realer than real at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, the big thing is, of course, in Zisu, you know, let me show you my boat, and they do this cutaway model of the of the submarine that's you know that oh, was yeah. the first time where anderson was i was thoroughly impressed with wes anderson i was like that's so cool and you know the the the, the that scene in there and the stuff with the killer whales and all that is just fantastic of the two movies do you think that darjeeling is prettier is the vistas and the scenics and the visuals in darjeeling do they compete with Budapest in your mind or is Budapest, you know, as far as a visual movie, just as uh, enticing? I think after they get off the train, the vistas in Darjeeling are pretty special Mm. for Anderson's films. You just don't see that kind of thing in his movies. Yeah. Good point. at At least since Bottle Rocket. That are real places too. That are real places, yeah. Yeah. It, there, even Rushmore has a lot more artifice than than yeah. that, right? 
Yep. And, and uh, I feel like that's really powerful. Yeah. It bring it brings the the movie an earthiness you seldom see in any of his other movies. Yes. Yes. And Grounded because it, maybe is a better way of putting it. So that yeah. when they're confronting their mother, when they're dealing with Angelica at the convent, yeah, at the convent, the convent's a real place, or it feels like a real place. Sure. Uh what what's the what's the classic um classic movie by the archers? Oh, uh, yeah, 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 convent. yeah. I know what you're talking about. Kind of for a moment, think about that. Yes, it did make me think of uh, uh you would say it and Black Narcissus. <laughs> Yes, yes, it definitely has that black narcissus archer's feel to it. Um, when you see the convent, the giant cross, it yeah, yeah, it, it definitely feels like uh, and, and Grand Budapest could have that same feel, but I think because it's more of a construction, as we've been saying, you you don't get that. You you know, it was probably a real hotel, they probably found a location to shoot certain things, but when you're looking at India, I feel like you're looking at India. It could be Southern California, but I think you're really looking at India. And it gets back to that idea of those, you know, Satyajit Ray movies set in India. That's what he's sort of giving you. Yeah. Um, in that Grand, movie. Grand Budapest never feels like it's, it's in the Alps. It just, we're, we're buying the artifice that takes place in the Alps. Right. It's as unreal as the world of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yep. Yep. And that's okay. That, that's yeah. super enjoyable for what it is. Yeah. In fact, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, to wrap it up, like, like, I really think Grand Budapest is an amazing film. It's about survival and loyalty and being true to yourself and service to others. Yeah, and it's something about these movies that span decades uh, are really powerful, but don't feel like they do. They all Not feel all. interconnected. Yeah, it's got this weightlessness to it at the same time, mm-hmm. like a souffle, like a beautiful treat like you're casting off your uh you know monogrammed uh designer bags yes uh, casting off your baggage you make a great case for darjeeling being a better film than people think it is well i hope so i mean if nothing else i think it's you know like i said it's it's a mutt it's supposed to be but there's a lot going on there that's a lot of fun and i think it points to those Anderson themes of working through grief of, you know, fathers and sons, obviously, but I think a big part of his movies as he goes on and relationships to family and trying to understand family uh, not created. Cause I think grand Budapest is the, you know, the friends, the family that you create, the, the yeah. family that you make, not the family you're born into, but Darjeeling deals with that. And, you know, it, it, it's a spiritual successor to some of those Anderson movies that people admire so much. Um, even though it does, even though it does basically say we're done with all that <laughs> from the, from the jump. <laughs> this is one of those movies that uh, this is why I do this show, honestly, because uh, this is one of these movies that I expected not too much out of. And Darcy Ling really hit me. Like I, yeah. I know the reputation of Grand Budapest and, uh, I expected it to be great, and it was great. But the movie that's that wasn't as doesn't have the reputation, but ended up being great. It's really, in some ways, uh, just a great. Uh, it's it's on par. Experience. It's as good as his other. It's as good as his other movies, in in in, in its way. It, but like I said, that's why I kept referring to it as a mutt. You know, you it, it's not purebred. It's not perfect in every way. It's a little ratty, and that's the other thing you don't get in some of uh anderson's movies because he has this reputation of you know this doll's house everything is constructed everything is engineered um but darjeeling is a little ratty and i think on purpose mm-hmm. and i think it's supposed to be you know i'm really glad we got to talk about these yeah thanks jason always a pleasure <laughs>